Thank you so much. Good morning. What we're going to be doing today in the coming days together is to be looking at a series of leaders of Israel who demonstrated degrees of or lack thereof wisdom as it related to guiding God's people, shepherding God's people, seeking God or not seeking God. And what I want to do with you in this series that will be taken from both Kings and the Chronicles is to have a better understanding of the ways in which when we seek God and when we pursue God's wisdom, the blessings are there for us to be able to not only experience, but also to share with others in our circles and relationships. So with that in mind, I'd love for you to take your Bibles and turn now to Second Chronicles, where in chapter 1, you and I are given the opportunity to get a better appreciation for the transition that occurs as we move from David to Solomon. So, Second Chronicles is where you're turning. If you have trouble finding it, it's, well, it's after First Chronicles. And that should help. And beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read down through verse 13, and here we find Ezra penning these words for you and for me. Solomon, son of David, established himself firmly over his kingdom. For the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. And then Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, to the judges and to all the leaders in Israel, the heads of families. And Solomon and the whole assembly went to the high place at Gibeon, for God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses, the Lord's servant, had made in the desert. Now David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place he had prepared for it because he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. But the bronze altar that Bezalel, son of Eri, the son of Hur, had made was in Gibeon, in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. And so Solomon and the assembly inquired of him there. Solomon went up to the bronze altar before the Lord and the tent of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. That night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered God, You have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed. For you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, Since this is your heart's desire, and you have not asked for wealth, riches, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies, and since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king, therefore wisdom and knowledge will be given you. And I will also give you wealth, riches, and honor, such as no king who was before you ever had, and none after you will have. Then Solomon went to Jerusalem from the high place at Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting, 
and he reigned over Israel. Now we're going to look at these verses and try to understand not only what was going on in that time period, but also we're going to connect the dots and try to relate it to our time period and see what this has to say to you and to me as well. And to do that, we're going to start by looking to God in prayer. Now, fathers, we're coming before you. We come before you as people sinful by nature, people who can only access you through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, people who are in desperate need to be able to better understand you and your ways and your will for our lives. We are people who come. We are people who come from various backgrounds, but we come. There's some heavy hearts out here in these three services, but we come. There are highs, there are lows, and there are the status quos, and we come. There are health-related issues. There are job-related issues. There are retirement matters. There are matters of sickness and health. There are matters of loss and matters of restoration needed. And we come. And we come from such a wide range of backgrounds and a wide range of issues and ethnic groups, but we come. And we find common ground at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, and we come. Meet us here, Father. Speak to our hearts. By your Spirit, you've got a way of warming those hearts. By your Spirit, you have a way of engaging these minds, and we come. We've come here to see Jesus, Him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a look at this scene, this picture that appears on the screen. There's a story attached to those hands. Are you struck by the fact that they are two hands, yet only one baton? The 400-meter relay is a major track and field event, of course, in the Olympics. But you and I are aware that this critical moment that we are staring at this time occurs within a 20-meter area. It's the passing of the baton. If the baton is passed before that 20-meter area or after that 20-meter area, the team's disqualified. And if the baton is dropped while passing or in the middle of the race, once again, the team is disqualified. Two hands representing two different people, two hands where at this particular moment are grasping just one baton. 
my mind begins to reflect upon those people, one has already run his laps, distinguished by experience. The other has not yet run his laps, distinguished by lack of experience. The one who has run his laps, even though he has much, ener much experience, he has now diminished energy. The one who has yet to run his laps is distinguished by little experience, of course, but much energy. That one hand represents release. The other hand represents reception. One hand represents a runner who is slowing his pace as he enters that 20-meter area, while the other hand represents one who is now quickening his pace as he is leaving his starting block. One has fingerprints all over that baton, his own. The other one has none. But neither owns that baton. One is finishing, the other's beginning. One has a story about the responsibilities of carrying that baton prior to. The other has no story. It's about to unfold, but has responsibility for that baton subsequent to. It's the story of uh, a business being passed from one generation to another. It's the story of Moses passing the baton to a Joshua. It's the story of disciples being mentored by Jesus and finding out he's leaving and the baton is being passed to them. It's the story of David passing the baton on to Solomon. It's the story of a parent in relationship to his or her children. Two hands, one baton. And what interests me is that in the Hebrew, in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1, the first word is literally and, which does not appear in the New International Version. In other words, Ezra, the writer of 2 Chronicles, is telling us there is a continuation here. There is more story to be written out of 1 Chronicles. David has died, but when God buries the workman, he does not bury his work. And though there is a new hand, there is the same baton. So what I want to do with you now is look very carefully as we continue this thinking in the realm of transitions and try to picture what is happening here in this 20-meter area of our lives.
Some of us are approaching it. Others of us are leaving it. Many of us are in the midst of it where the baton is being passed and ask ourselves, what are the critical issues here that relate to your life and relate to my life? I spot three of them in these verses. The first is found in verse 1 down to verse 6. We begin with what you and I will note to be the, the, the worship that we give. Now notice here that as Solomon is receiving the baton from his father, he is now king of Israel. So as we've mentioned, in the original language, in the Hebrew, the little word W-A-W, transliterated, vow, literally and. And Solomon, the son of David, established himself firmly over his kingdom. Now, there is a separate account for what's happening here. And it's found in 1 Kings chapters 1, 2, and 3. And what Solomon is going to experience is something very similar to what his father David experienced. There is a family uprising. There's family turmoil. Have you ever experienced that? Family tensions. In David's blended family situation, Absalom challenged David's reign. In Solomon's situation, Adonijah challenges Solomon's reign. Two generations, and yet there are challenges, there are tensions within the extended family gatherings. Both men, whose names start with A, Absalom of a prior generation, and now Adonijah, what we see here is that there seems to be a revolt against the authority of God's will. Because Solomon, we are told, son of David has established himself firmly over his kingdom. Now, what fascinates you and fascinates me is that Solomon was not his real name. For if you and I were to look back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24 and 25, that's the name, of course, that David and Bathsheba gave to him. But do you know the name that God gave to him? Jedidiah. Jedidiah. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, 25. Which means in the Hebrew, literally, beloved by the Lord. David was not first in birth order, and yet he was anointed king. Solomon, Jedidiah, was not first in birth order, but God sovereignly chose him as king. Therefore now, Solomon's got some jealous brethren on his hands, and one in particular by the name of Adonijah. There is a revolt that Chronicles does not share with us. First Kings chapters 1, 2, and 3 do. But what the chronicler simply shares with you and shares with me was that in verse 1, the Lord his God was with him, which is a reminder to you and me that even in the midst of the trials of your life, if you know and love Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Lord is with you. Don't assume if there are revolts and there's tensions and there's conflicts in life 
that God is absent, that God has removed himself from your presence. In the midst of the challenges and the tensions of this life, God is present. God is with Solomon. The name comes from the Hebrew word for shalom, peace. And it's God who made him exceedingly great. So now, what I want you to notice here is the way in which Solomon, like his father David, who right before the passing of the baton, in public matter, expressed worship to the Lord, Solomon does likewise. Notice with me his proactive worship in verse 2. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of the thousands and the commanders of the hundreds, to the judges, to all the leaders in Israel and the heads of families. And Solomon and the whole assembly went to the high place at Gibeon, for God's tent of meeting was there. He took the initiative. If you are somebody who is shepherding your home, leading a family, influencing people at work and the likes, notice the leadership principle that flows from the experience of Solomon, he is demonstrating proactive worship here. He's getting others and engaging others in the process of not looking at him, but looking upward at God. If the baton has just been passed to you, or if you are in that zone of transference, the 20-meter area, where does worship fit into the context of that transfer? And how are you shaping people's lives to think upwardly rather than merely inwardly? You see, Solomon is beginning with an upward approach in the transference of the baton. There's proactive worship here in verse 2. He's engaging others. But not only is there proactive worship here, there's unified worship. Did you notice here in this verse that it's all Israel? Notice his usage of the whole assembly in verse 3. They went to this high place at Gibeon, for God's tent of meeting was there. Now you pause there. And you say, but Gary, I thought that David had brought the ark to Jerusalem. So why is Solomon there going to the altar in Gibeon, to the high place? It's because we're in time of transition. And not everything has yet been consolidated in Jerusalem. The altar is still in Gibeon where Moses had seen his, overseen his construction of this. The ark now is Jerusalem. But Solomon's purpose is to sacrifice to worship. So now he leads the congregation northward towards Gibeon, towards that high place on the mountain area where they have this tremendous opportunity to engage God's presence and to offer God worship. It's proactive. It's unified. In verse 4, you and I are given a little background, aren't we? 
David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place he had prepared for it because he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. But the bronze altar of Bezalel, son Uri, the son of Hur, had made, it was in Gibeon, Gibeon, in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. And here's what interests us. You see that name Bezalel? Bezalel, the story of his work in the craftsmanship of that altar found in Exodus chapter 31, and again in chapter 35, was a man filled with wisdom. He was committed to the ark, or rather to this altar, and in the construction of the altar, worship and wisdom would be connected together in his experience. And now as Solomon is making his way towards Gibeon to worship God, worship and wisdom are being connected in his experience. What he's informing you and me is this. When you and I find ourselves in that 20-meter area of transference, and we need tremendous wisdom from God, we need to be making absolutely certain that we are a proactive worshiper of God. For when we come into his presence, we become increasingly engaged with who he is what he says, what he wants. And here's Solomon at Gibeon. This is proactive worship. This is unified worship. This is inquiring worship. Do you see it there in verse 5? So Solomon and the assembly inquired of him there. As we come into the presence of the Lord on Sunday morning corporately, we're coming here with a lot of questions. A lot of questions. God, how do I address this issue of depression in my life? Lord, do I need a second or third medical opinion? Is that the right company, God, for me to be working in and for? Lord, I'm in that 20-meter area right now, and I'm struggling with the transference of the baton into my son's hands. I need some understanding how to do it well. Proactive. Unified worship. Inquiring worship. Costly worship. Solomon went up in verse 6 to the bronze altar before the Lord in the tent of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings. Worship which costs me nothing accomplishes nothing. I have to have that sense of the presence of God in my life. There are the house churches in China, you know, where there's been a tremendous crackdown on, on what is occurring there. The story's told of one house church in particular in China, I'm thinking of at this point, that has about 150 people that gather together largely in secrecy so as not to be arrested. 
They love to study God's Word. And they love to sing. Here's the problem. They know that when they sing, it might cause someone to alert the authorities. So they sing quietly in shifts. Five at a time. So as not to be heard. But man, they sing. And it's proactive worship. It's unified worship. It's inquiring worship as they seek the Word of God. And you know it. It's costly worship. They don't know if they're going to get incarcerated or not. Which of these features is missing in your worship experience? Because if we combine them, then what you and I have the opportunity to do is to connect the whole matter of worship to wisdom. Solomon does that in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, doesn't he? Where he wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 9, verse 10. And the fear of the Lord carries with it the idea of worshipful, reverential awe of God. Now, if you're needing tremendous wisdom in the 20-meter area, and maybe... Maybe you're at the point of release, or maybe you're at the point of reception. I don't know which it is, but you're in the zone. In that zone, we've got to be critically aware of the fact that it's the fear of the Lord, not the fear of dropping the baton. It's the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. It is worshipful, reverential awe. And knowledge of the Holy One, you see, is understanding. Is that where you're at? If so, what you and I are about to do now is to make a major connection. Because we're going to move from the worship we give in verse 1 through 6 to the wisdom we need in verse 7 through 13. Notice here in verse 7, that night God appeared to Solomon. It does not read, that night Solomon appeared before God. This is a revelation of truth from God to Solomon. And notice when it occurs. The worship we give sets now in motion the opportunity to be able to experience the wisdom we so desperately need. He has approached this thing in a proactive, unified, inquiring, costly manner. And God's listening to you. So God breaks in. Waiting for God to break in. That night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. 
Now imagine that one being delivered to your heart. You have just been given an empty blank check. Signed by God. What's going on inside your mind right now? What's going on inside your heart? What would you like the memo on that check to read? How would you like it designated? Seven is unique. Nothing like it anywhere else in the Old Testament. Reminds me of when Jesus said, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you in John 15 verse 7. Solomon now in verse 8 answers. He's got only one opportunity to get it right. You've only got one opportunity to make a first impression. Solomon answered God. You have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed, for you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may, that I may lead this people, for who's able to govern this great people of yours? People, Solomon was 20 years old when he made this request. So, as it always happens, every night, phone rings in our house, and my youngest son calls in to pray with his father. Right now, he's in the process of trying to determine God's leading regarding a major and where it leads to his future. He is 20 years old. And as is typical, on Saturday night, we preview what I'll be teaching on Sunday morning. Right now, he's at the Moody Church in Chicago with my son, my other son, Joe, and my daughter-in-law, Jessica. And so what I do with him is to say, Benjamin, this is your passage. Connect worship to wisdom and begin to ponder how this 20-year-old responded then to the revelation of God here. And as we begin to think this through, talk this through together, the first thing that I point out to him as I preview for him what we are now covering is that this prayer is based upon God's promise. Look carefully now at what Solomon does. You've shown great kindness, hesed is the Hebrew word, to David my father, and have made me king in his place. He's not talking about his own personal achievements here. He's talking about God's grace. Verse 9. This is significant. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed. Stop right there. In 2 Samuel 7, God had delivered this eternal promise to David with regard to a dynasty which would last forever. 
An eternal kingdom with eternal land matters at stake. That's why we see Israel in the Middle East today. 1948, they regained that land. This promise is still in effect and always will be. This prayer is based upon God's promise. So now, let's say you are in that, you are in that 20 meter zone. And you are now connecting worship to wisdom. What you've also got to be able to do is to connect the past to the present. The promise to the person. And what Solomon now is doing is he's saying, I believe. I believe what you said then is still relevant for me today. I take you at your word. Now, when you're needing wisdom, you've got to take God at his word and take that word and relate it to your own life. This is where wisdom's developed. But now, he's focused on the promise. Have you ever been focused on the promises of God and wondered how they relate to your life? Let's see if we can't get a handle on them for about 30 seconds here. There are three types of promises. There is such a thing as a universal promise for all humankind, believer or unbeliever. Next time you see a rainbow in the sky, think of the promise delivered to all people as evidence of God's grace spoken of to Noah and his descendants, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. A universal promise. There is a national promise such as that land being forever. And God keeps that promise as we see Israel again in that land, as Egypt has just gotten some additional arsenal, and Iran continues to be a source of major threat. There is a universal promise. There is a national promise. But there is also a personal promise. Look for the personal promises as they relate to you. Connect them to the national promises pertaining to Israel in the final days. Incorporate them into the universal promises for all of humankind. And now what you are doing is you are once again building wisdom into your thinking. Noting and distinguishing universal, national, personal. And you bring it home to the decisions you're making right now in that 20-area zone of baton transference. But you read a little further here, and you realize that not only is Solomon looking back one generation, he's going to go multiple generations because he understands that history has relevance. The past shapes the present. That's why there's such a thing as a genealogy in the gospel. So now he goes back a little further in time, and he says, you've made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Where did he get that one? Genesis 28, verse 14, God made that promise to Jacob, renamed Israel. And God delivered that promise in the midst of a dream. And how does God approach Solomon? In the midst of a dream. 
Look for the patterns of the past and relate them to the decisions of the present. This is not what Solomon's doing. He's 20 years old. He is dead. Boy, could he teach me. There's something more he's teaching us here. Not only can we say that this prayer is based upon God's promise, but furthermore that this prayer is concerned for God's people. As we oftentimes say, we're not called to be reservoirs of truth. We're called to be channels of grace. He's not in this for himself. He's in this for others. Give me wisdom and knowledge, he says, that I may lead this people. For who is able to govern this great people of mine? No. Of yours. Bring it home. You're a parent. And you're in that 20-meter area. And you're grappling with how to personalize this. God, give me wisdom and knowledge that I may be able to lead this family. For who is able to govern this great family of yours, not mine? Because we're managers. He's owner. And you care. And Solomon cares. It's 1969 when Ron Greenfield lay in a rice paddy in Vietnam after losing his legs in a grenade explosion. He wanted to do something with his life of significance beyond even the defense of his peoples. He learned of, in Moscow, twin amputees, two boys. No prospective adoptive parents there willing to take them in. Ron flew to Moscow, qualified for adoption, walked into the orphanage to meet the boys. They'd been turned down numerous times. They were skeptical until Ron removed his artificial limbs, revealing his stubs. And then through a translator said to them, we're family now. People need to know you care in that 20-meter zone. You don't own that baton. It's meant to be transferred. You can't hang on to that baton and run past that 20-meter zone or you're disqualified. There's a handoff here. Handoff. And when we grasp this, we understand that we need wisdom, but there's a relationship between the worship we give and the wisdom we need. This request is based upon God's promise. Do you claim the promise of God? This request here is rooted, furthermore, in concern for God's people. Do you care? Do you care? If you pull all this together, then, what you and I know is that there is a powerful verse in the New Testament. You could connect this passage, too, in James 1, verse 5. 
that if any of you lacks of wisdom, he should ask God, not each other at this point. First things first. Who gives generously, not, not stingy, to all without finding fault. He's not going to dig up that stuff you've already sought forgiveness for. This is the promise, and it will be given to him. Look for the will-tos, and they are associated with promises of. If that's not enough, and you're in that 20-meter area, what about that one that you and I know in the New Testament from the Gospel account in Matthew? But seek first his kingdom, not my desires, and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. See the connection here? When you connect worship to wisdom, and you connect Old Testament to New Testament, and you connect promise to present and people to the promise. You feel the groundswell of wisdom taking place in the decision making of your life. God's got something to say here. He says it to Solomon. Since this is your heart's desire and you have not asked for wealth, riches, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies, And since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern, not your people, my people, over whom I have made you king, I will also give you wealth, riches, and honor, such as no king who was before you had ever had, and none after you will have. What would have happened if he'd gotten the wealth and the honor and not the wisdom? He would slowly, perhaps even quickly, squander the wealth and the honor. First things first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then you see these things are added. You see the word wisdom there? Hebrew word chokmah. Three significant words or phrases associated with in the Old Testament on into the New means literally in terms of wisdom, masterful understanding, expertise, skill. The word knowledge there carries with the idea of the content of what God has revealed. One deals with what God has revealed, the other deals with and how do I Work with what God has revealed. Henry Ford asks the electrical genius Charlie Steinmetz to build the generators in his factory. One day the generators ground to a halt. Repairmen couldn't find the problem, let alone figure out the solution. So they called Steinmetz, tinkered with the machines for a few hours, threw a switch, the generators whirred into action. But then days later, Ford got a bill for $10,000 from Steinmetz. 
Now, Ford was known for being tight-fisted. Wanted to know why the bill was so high. I love Steinmetz's response, don't you? Quote, for tinkering with the generators, $10. For knowing where to tinker, $9,990. Ford paid the bill. What I'm arguing for as we delve deeper into the texts of the Scriptures, we know how to tinker. And we're not caught off guard when we enter into that 20-meter area. We're prepared for this. We know we don't own that baton. That was not ours to begin with. It involves the principles of release and reception. It happens in employment when a business is transferred to somebody else. It happens in home life where a new generation takes over. It happened in the transference from Moses to Joshua, from David to Solomon, from Jesus to the disciples and you and me. How do you handle that? 20 area zone. Well, Solomon went to Jerusalem at the high place at Gibeon from before the tent of meeting, and he reigned over Israel, you see. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there because there's one more very critical issue which will hit in rapid-fire succession. Because <clears throat> we're not only dealing then with the worship we give in 1 through 6, the wisdom we need in 7 through 13, but thirdly, the world we face in 14 through 17. <coughs> this is not my father's world, speaking of my father, my human father, whose name is David. The advancing technology, the greater and greater degrees of complexity in the world at this time, the confusing uncertainties within the United States of America today. Notice now that while David was a man at war with the other nations, Solomon now is a man at peace, and he's constructing alliances with these other nations. As you allow on your own for your eyes to move from 14 through 17, the principles that stand out here are, number one, the need to understand the time. Number two, to recognize the differences from the times of the prior generation to this generation. Number three, to assess the needs that are out there right now, which may be far different than the needs of the prior generation. And number four, to be able to provide the strength needed for the generation in which we are carrying the baton. In Solomon's reign, he had to build a strong standing army so that Israel could be secure. And as he did so, what he has now done for us is to connect worship, wisdom, world. And as we do so, we have a better plan on how to take the promises of God and the people of God and work it into the strategy that God has given you and me to live our lives. So you're back to two hands and one baton. 
That one hand represents a lot of experience, the other not. But the other hand represents a lot of energy, which the prior hand doesn't. One hand represents release, and the other to receive. One slows the pace as the other quickens the pace. One's got fingerprints all over that baton. The other, no fingerprints, but neither hand owns that baton. One is finishing, the other's beginning. One had responsibilities before, the other has responsibilities after. But the one who has responsibilities before, once you get out of that zone, out of that area, you can't go running ahead and pick up the baton once the one who took the baton from you drops it. That's not your right. That's not your responsibility. And the team gets disqualified if you do. Know your responsibilities. Know your rights. Identify the before, durings, and afters. Connect the dots. Know that zone thoroughly. If you find yourself in the area of 20 meters, worship, wisdom, world, as revealed in God's word, shapes our lives. Let's stand together. My prayer, Father, is that this entire congregation is so biblically saturated with God-honoring thoughts and God-honoring life. It impacts our decision-making, shapes our worship, instills our need for wisdom, helps us to better evaluate this world, for the one who's struggling with promise, give them the assurance of your presence. For the one who doesn't know you, I pray they come to saving faith. For all of us, Father, we're running a race, but we don't own that baton. But we have to run well. We'll keep our eyes fixed on you. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.